Hi there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for Coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome to Time for Coffee. I am so glad that you were able to fit me into the schedule today, whether you're doing laundry or cleaning the apartment or just commuting to or from classes or work. I know your time is stretched, so let's jump right in. You got to have a mug of some kind of caffeinated beverage on hand because here we go. It's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Jonathan Sackett, who is an advertising, digital marketing, and business professional. He's president and chief content officer at Allscope, and he's a board member for Mashburn Enterprises, and he's got more than 20 years of international industry experience. Jonathan, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? (laughs) Always. So Jonathan, you're obviously the big cheese at Allscope as president and chief content officer. Not that Java junkies are going to be stepping right into that role right out of school. I mean, maybe some exceptional individuals could, but still take us inside the job and what you do. What are the primary functions of your job? Insanity, <laughs> first, <laughs> first and foremost. You know, the, a lot of it is solving problems. I think I get asked about the Geico work a lot, right? Government employee insurance company. People are like, oh, I didn't know that's what it stood for. All they think of is the lizard. But a lot of it is brainstorming. A lot of it is problem solving. And a lot of it is joking around. Because I think the days of selling a product where you hold up your pack of dentine and smile at the camera are gone. So what uh, Mars Wrigley or even Geico or Coca-Cola or any of our partners that we've worked with, Milk over the years, what they do is they say, hey, how do we sell more gum? But you go up to, remember the gum aisle used to have like five packs. Now it's got like 500. Mm-hmm. How, do you, how do you differentiate yourself not only online and in a commercial, but in that last five feet of the decision so that people, they reach for it. So a lot of it is brainstorming. A lot of it is problem solving. And frankly, at the end of the day, if you don't sell product, you'll get fired. So, you know, that's what we're here to do. And whether it's business operations right now with our partners, we've been dealing a little bit with some Papa John's issues, which I'm sure everybody's read about. You have to either solve problems on the inside of an organization or at the face of the organization. So a lot of brainstorming, a lot of discussions and a lot of data. Nowadays, everybody's measuring something. What is a chief content officer? It's really like a chief creative officer, but what they do is they'll tell you what it is you should be talking about. So on one hand, like, for example, let's talk about some car dealerships that we deal with. If What they're doing is they're asking us questions about how should we talk about the product? How should we talk about life? What are the things we should say and where should we be? So over my career, I've mostly been chief digital officer, but I started making commercials. We've launched some TV shows over the years. And now it's been more about the content. What is the graphic conversation you want to have? What is the sound? If I go, dum, 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 you know, that's Intel inside, right? Mm-hmm. So that's, to me, sight, sound, and soul is the content that you want to provide. You just have to know where and when to provide it. So take me inside a typical day. If I were a fly on the wall in your office or a bee buzzing around that you were trying to swat, what would I be seeing and hearing? (laughs) Oh, no. Um, (laughs) I was going to say, somebody call HR before I start talking. No. (laughs) I think I, I get up early. 
I go for a run because I got to clear my head before I go in. Then what happens is for me, it's meeting to meeting to meeting to conference call to lunch meeting. Then usually somewhere in there, there's a pitch. Now I've had with my teams, I've had a ton of success with pitching over the years, but a lot of it, I don't, I try not to do that anymore. I try to have lunches and dinners with people and sit down and listen first, just because I think the advertising has changed so much. And I used to be more of an ad guy where I'd come in and before I would listen, I would have 10 ideas. Now I try to listen first and then provide the ideas. So I surround myself with a variety of people. Some people are tech, some are graphic designers, some are copywriters, some are strategists, consumer forensics, things like that. And you're sitting around and solving a problem like that. I always believed that engineering can't solve the car problem alone, nor can design. But getting the designers to work with the engineers is the key. So I think I've been very well versed at doing that. So you get a, a pizza of people, I always call it. It's things that seemingly wouldn't go together. Because whoever designed the first pizza... Who came up with that? All right, we're going to smash a bunch of tomatoes on top of some dough, and then we're going to get some salted cured meat and throw cheese on it. It doesn't seem like it would work, but man, it does. And I think if everybody's coming at a problem from a different perspective as we're surrounding that problem, it makes everybody in that room better. So there's a lot of that throughout the day. And it's the first meeting will be about gum. The second meeting is about beer. Third meeting is about insurance. So by the end of the day, your brain is pretty much tapped. So uh, if by the time a dinner meeting comes, I'm not quite as interesting as I was for the breakfast meeting. <laughs> <laughs> you rattled off a number of different jobs, or at least the titles, that I am not familiar with. Could you take us into the teamwork that's involved and what these different positions are as the industry has evolved? For sure. I think data has become so much more important. You know, for any of your listeners who've ever watched the Mad Men shows or any of that stuff, it always seemed like there was no data. It was like they were just talking about, well, here's how you're going to sell the product, right? But what we do is it's over the years, it's been a graphic designer, obviously, is going to come up with the look, feel. The copywriter is going to come up with the tone of the look and feel. And then when you get into things like data or consumer forensics, consumer analytics, those are roles where let's just take dumps. We're working with Mars Wrigley, for example, and they'll say, look, we're finding out that our sales are tanking at the point of purchase, which is predominantly where you buy your gum anyway. So they will have data on the last five feet where you get to the cash register. And they'll also have data like we used to handle all of the smart network inside of Walmarts. So, you know, those screens and all the aisles. So our consumer forensics teams would come up with the algorithm for the stores so that you weren't showing a bathing suit on a screen in a bathing suit aisle. You were showing suntan lotion. So what consumer forensics and data-driven people do is they're constantly digging in to the numbers and the peripheral information. What is the actual user path through a store? What is the user path online? What are the search terms that people are using? And is your product coming up or not? And then once your product does come up or doesn't, what do the people see if they don't see you? So that's become inherently necessary in, in what we do to be smarter because there's a reason why the color of the packaging is blue. There's a reason why the coloring of the package is black. There's a reason why we design these things. We designed an energy drink. It's only available mostly on the West Coast, and it's called Uptime Energy. And there's a reason why we made that can, the shape, the color, the texture that it is. It's because we had to differentiate ourselves from the other products out there. How have you had to change and evolve over the last 20 years as the industry has changed? And how have you succeeded in doing that? 
a lot more facial moisturizers <laughs> over the years, for sure. You know, I came in at a time when digital was just starting. So Coca-Cola didn't have a website, if you could actually imagine that. And I think I came in so digital centric that I felt it was the answer to everything. So search vernacular, should that copy the search terms that people use to find your soul, your essence, your product, whatever, those are the words that should be used in the advertising. And now what I've gotten much better at doing because I've done my own commercials, I've done my own TV shows and things like that, is I've got it more to be hand in glove. And I had to improve on that. I had to improve on the content. I had to improve on oh, how does the ping pong effect work between the television screen, the web screen, and your mobile screen. So the three of them can work together hand in hand much better. And now the technologies are there to detect when, where, how you're watching it. I mean, ask Facebook. They probably have everything on both of us. And I think that that's been key is finding a ways for those things to work together more than being so digital centric. How essential is it that a Java junkie be creative in order to break through in advertising and digital marketing? That's a great question. You know what you'll find is that it's interesting to me because typically in, in advertising agencies, the account people, they will tell you they are the lowest rung in an ad agency. Okay, they, They're there to schedule meetings. You would think that the account person would be controlling things and organizing and, and defining, but typically they aren't. And what I have said, I've been in the middle of these arguments for years, and I have said, look, guys, creative should not be a department. Creativity should be a discipline for everybody. Because what you'll find is the account person ends up having to explain to the client why a deadline was missed. They have to justify the costs of a $2 million ad for a Super Bowl. And in fact, it's a lot more than that. But they have to be creative in their justification. They have to be creative in selling in the staffing plans. Just like the creative teams need to be creative in coming up with the design, the sound, the ideas. And I think creativity has to go through each department. If you're not creative as a data analytics person, then you're not giving me actionable data. You're just giving me information. And that's not good enough. So I think creativity, I think back to some of our pitches, the milk mustache, which everybody knows, that was wallpaper paste on our lips. I think these beer commercials that we've done over the years, all the Bud Light, and if you remember, Bud's McKenzie and all that stuff. Bud's was a girl dog, by the way. Because, oh, really? Yeah, because it was a, a neighbor's dog. But if you think about it, why you wouldn't want a male dog on the screen, you can kind of figure out why. There's certain things you probably don't want to see. So if we use a female dog, you don't see it. Well, this is not like it's a horse, for God's sakes. <laughs> well, you didn't see these, these dogs that were coming in. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly. Clearly. Uh, what's the rating on your show now? Well, I am going to have an E on this one. So there oh, will okay. Yeah, for sure. Jonathan, you mentioned this in the Espresso Shot interview that in terms of Java junkies pursuing a graduate degree. And by the time they're reading case studies about whatever it is in the industry, you're already years beyond that. Do you think the same is true for undergrad? Do you think that there's so much happening and it's evolving so quickly that actually majoring in marketing, digital marketing, public relations, advertising doesn't make sense? 
Well, the thing is, is that I believe this to be true, that there's a huge difference between your high school education and your college education. And I think we all probably need that little bit of free time to drink beer with friends and have that freedom and find yourself. So those are the intangibles of college to me. The tangibles of college, if I were going to school now and I was going to ask me for advice, I I would say to myself, here's what you need to do. You need to start working while you're in college and volunteering more than just working at the deli or, you know, wherever your college job is. Because if you can get in with marketing firms, with ad agencies, client side, and get that well-rounded understanding, the life experience that you will learn over time in college, in your undergrad in particular, is going to be helpful. But the conversations that you'll have in the professional environment will be absolutely essential. Because the thing is, you don't know what you don't know. And I see it all the time. You know my resume. I mean, I've worked at, I was head of North America at Ogilvy. I was head of VDB in Chicago, the Martin Agency. I was chief digital officer. So I've been around at those levels. But what happens is we always bring in the interns. And at the end of every internship is like a creative shootout. So basically, we bring in one of our clients and like it was Wonka Candies from Nestle. And it was the brand manager from there. And she'll sit on a panel with us and we'll judge them on how they pitch us and what they've learned. You know, I learned from that, too. But what I see with these interns is they're sitting in a room and they're pulling their hair out, they're frustrated, they don't even know how to start. And I'm there to help. And there's always a me at any of these agencies. There's also an anti-me at these agencies, so be careful. But those people will help guide you, help you understand how to apply what you already know. And I mean, let's face it, we all buy candy, we all buy beer, we all buy wine, we all buy stuff. But until somebody tells you, you know, they remind you of your own behaviors. And that's I think that's what I do with the interns a lot. So I never had an internship in advertising. I had an internship in the music industry. So I I wish I would have. But now I would recommend that, hey, just go into these places, go into Ogilvy and try to meet somebody. Use LinkedIn and try to get say, look, I don't need money. Can I just come in and listen to a brainstorm? No one's going to crucify you for that. And that's what I wish somebody would have told me a long time ago. Fantastic. That's great advice. You mentioned that there are anti-use in the industry. How can Java junkies keep their head down so they don't cross swords with someone like that? Yeah, you got to swim with the sharks and you got to dodge bullets. If I can tell you a quick story, when I was at the Martin Agency, and I think this was 2009 when we won Agency of the Year, we pitched and won all 16 brands of Tylenol in one pitch and all these unheard of things. It was just extraordinary. And I remember... Our COO, Paul, I was walking by his office and he called me in and we were expanding so much. When I got there, within two years, we went from 200 and some employees to 750. It was it was growing pains. And then you're trying to hire the best people. So you're in Richmond, Virginia, by the way, is where so it's not far from you, right? Yeah, not that far. A couple hours away. Yeah. So we're in Richmond, Virginia, and we're beating all the New York and LA and Chicago agencies. It was just unbelievable. And Paul called me in his office and, and we were hiring all these people from LA and New York. And he said, hey, I'm getting a lot of complaints in here from new employees and stuff. And they're saying that we don't know what we're doing. We're antiquated in our ways of thinking and stuff, which all of it wasn't true. It was just a culture shock to move from New York to Richmond, Virginia, I think. But he said, I said the same thing to every person that's come in here to complain. I said, where's Sackett? How how come Sackett never had a problem here? And, you know, usually when you come in at a high level position, there's somebody else internally that wanted it. Right. Mm -hmm. So and and I said, well, you know, Paul, the truth of the matter is if there's politics going on 
or any negativity. I don't see it because I'm too busy. And the thing is, is I said earlier that John Adams, who was the CEO there, chairman, he would always say, keep your eye on the prize. When you find yourself in those discussions with people, they will bring you down. If people are negative and such, just remember, if they're negative to your face, they're probably negative behind your back. (laughs) So I've always found that you know what? My prize is to do the best job I can do. My prize is to build teamwork and to have fun. And if I look at everything through that lens of that triad, everything I do seems to work out and I don't really get involved in politics. If I hear people complaining, uh, maybe they need to go somewhere else because it's just that's not the culture that I want to be around and it's not the culture that I want to build. And frankly, Jamal Mashburn, you know, one of our partners, Jamal will tell you the same thing about basketball. So I think that you find the right people, you do the right things, you keep a positive attitude. And anybody else who doesn't do that around you, you know who those people are and you know who to stay away from. But there's always going to be those people. I love that. Just keep away. (laughs) They start talking around the the water cooler, talking smack about someone. Just keep going. Yeah, it's, it's so true. I mean, we've all experienced it. I can only imagine you have in your career as well. I mean, you know, journalism. Oh, yeah. And I was in PR and I was in public affairs and and it's everywhere. I don't think there's an industry that's immune from from gossip and from negativity. So I think that's great advice, Jonathan. Listen, I want to flash back to when you were at the University of Minnesota and you were a marketing and PR major with a minor in psychology. Did you know what you were going to do when you graduated? Yes. And? (laughs) I was going to make a lot of money. (laughs) No, I well, hopefully that came with it. But I actually I was on the target law program, too. So I really figured law school and an attorney. That's what I really figured. I, I was also in the recording industry in Minneapolis with Prince. And what a lot of people don't know is do you remember his CD Diamonds and Pearls? Yeah, of course. Okay, you know, the at the front of it was a hologram with him and two women. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the dark haired woman worked for Fallon in Minneapolis, which is an advertising agency. And so I befriended her. And after I would perform and stuff, she'd be up in the VIP room with Prince. I was always interested in marketing and advertising, but she was on the inside, obviously, much more than I was. So I always thought, man, I'd love to do that. I was always a creative thinker. But the thought of a healthy debate and being an attorney seemed more attractive at the time until I put one year of law school under me and I thought, I'm never doing this. I, I think I knew, but I couldn't admit it to myself, which probably sounds strange, but I think that's why I looked at it until I got on the inside and really saw it. And I knew that I could capitalize on it. So what was your first job after you graduated from the University of Minnesota and how did you get it? Well, first of all, my first half of a real job was at a marketing firm. It was a direct marketing when direct marketing was pretty big. And I managed their call center. One of the main account people at this firm, it was in a suburb of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and his name was Grant Johnson. And Grant told me, he said, you know, he would sit there and take me to lunch and stuff and kind of mentor me. And he he would tell me, he's like, you know, you're good at this. I don't know if you know this, but you're you're wasting your time. You should be doing what the rest of us are doing here, not managing a call center. But, you know, I didn't know how to get back into it or get doing it because I was still I just came out of doing the music. And now I was like, well, wait a minute. So this guy believes in me. So he recommended me to this digital shop. And it was one of the first digital agencies called Spectracom. And I went in there and interviewed. And, you know, I mean, I'm kind of a joker. And it's, I like to think I've got an okay personality. So I, I think that comes through. So they hired me. And I, I was there for a couple of years. And I learned 
quickly. I worked my butt off and I learned quickly. And then I moved to Chicago and I started getting involved in bigger firms with bigger responsibilities. But Spectrocom was definitely the starting point. Jonathan, what is the secret is probably the wrong word, but what are the ingredients for a pitch that works? I've always said this. It's passion, patience, persistence, and perseverance. So when you're in that pitch, you have to either outthink your competition, outwork your competition, or outcreate your competition. Because what I found with advertising agencies, so we're in a big pitch for Walmart, for example, which we ended up winning, thank God. <laughs> what, ha- what happens with agency people for some reason is it's a very insecure discipline. And you'll find that in, in the strategy meetings, so we're going into pitch Walmart, all the heads are sitting around the table. And I remember people saying, well, we're against Fallon. And what Fallon's going to pitch is data. And we're also against Arnold. And Arnold's going to pitch this. And Ogilvy's going to pitch that. And blah, blah, blah. And I found that the more that you're pushing your face against a window to look at the competition, the more that you're skewing your own view, right? So, you know, it's a a metaphor, but the more that you're thinking what everybody else is going to do, the less you're going to think on what you need to do. Oh, yeah. So what I found is, just by taking that passion, and it's it's not easy to have passion for a, a product all the time. It's Tylenol. It's a, it's a gum product. It's it's Walmart, and I don't shop there. You know, whatever whatever the excuse is. But if you can find your passion into doing it, you'll find that your creativity will flex itself. Your creativity is like a a muscle. If you don't flex it, it'll atrophy. So if you're creative in other aspects of your life, and you can walk in and say, you know what, at the end of the day. How are we going to sell more gum and how can we make gum more interesting? You know, I always I talk about Geico a lot, for example, and, you know, the government employee insurance company. And the thing was, was that everything we did was by default. They were mispronouncing the name. People, customers were calling it Geico. And we're like, OK, so let's tell them a gecko so we can get them to pronounce it. OK, now we have the call center full, but enough people aren't going to the Web. So we said, OK, it's so easy. A caveman can do it. Right. And then so everything that we did was reactive, but it was creative. If you remember the we had um, Little Richard on a commercial yeah, um, and he goes mashed potatoes, gravy that we didn't write that he did. And the thing is, is that the people at the powers of be at Geico said, we want to do testimonials of real letters from people. And we said, how can we make that interesting? So we sat them next to Joan Rivers. And at the end, she goes, oh, I think I smiled because she's had a lot of it. That was her. That wasn't us. But the thing is, is that we said, if we're going to do testimonials, why don't we get an actor to sit next to them and to act out what they're saying? So everything that we did was almost reactive, but it worked because we made it entertaining. I would say advertising these days is more about entertainment than product specifics. Four four, four out of five dentists recommend our gum isn't going to sell the product anymore. But if you look at the stuff we did with like five gum, graphic intensiveness and things of that nature, Skittles, even Starburst, if you look at some of those things, it's a creative way to sell a product. So I probably tangented all over the place. but No, I love that. How frequently has your psychology degree come into play? It has more for internal relations than anything. I think I've been in more than a few heated exchanges over the years, and it does happen. And you have to realize that's because that person across from you possesses a P of passion as well, right? So you can't knock somebody because of their passion, even if their passion disagrees with yours. So I think that the psychological aspects of my job has helped me to calm down situations more than it's helped me to sell products on behalf of the client. But it has helped because you need those interpersonal skills for sure. 
So Jonathan, final time for coffee question here. We have all, certainly for those of us who've been at this for a while, had periods in our professional life where we've hit a roadblock, where we were in over our head, we were drowning, we were fired, we were clashing with a boss, with a big colleague. Could you share a time in your professional life where you experienced something that was really tough and how you came through the other side? Well, the the old adage of when you come to the fork in the road, keep going. And I, I think that's definitely applied to me. Yogi Berra said that, I think. What happened was my first real job was at VectorCom. And the thing about it was, yeah, I'm sure it was a little bit me and a little bit them, but I was demoted at that job. And it, so it's my first real job. I'm handling one of their biggest accounts, which at the time was Purdue Farms. And we were also doing everything for Park Davis, Warner Lambert, so Schick, you know, all those products. And the powers that be there, whether this was the reason or not, it was all women. And I know that they just didn't like. And, you know, maybe it was partially my fault, too. Just, you know, I'm a, a little bit cocky and I'm, you know, got my own ways of doing things. I never ask for permission. I just do it. And they came in and they said, you know, this just really isn't working out and such. And I it really, really 100 percent caught me off guard because I thought I was friends with everybody there. But, you know, the management didn't care for me. So they gave me a choice. They said, you can either leave or, or we'll demote you. And I said, well, you know, it just it caught me so off guard. And here I have rent to pay and stuff. And I said, well, I'll take the demotion. So I went from 38000 to 32000 And I just kept working. Now, the clients all really liked me. And the thing is, it was a small company. There was like 50 people and everybody found out. And now you're showing up to work and you're embarrassed and you're you're trying to be nice to people. But some people are just never going to have you. You know, we've all experienced that, right? Mm -hmm. So I just I kept going through it and I thought, you know what? I know this industry, digital in particular, I know it's going to take off. So I know what I have to do. I have to pay the price. I have to stay here long enough so that I can get the experience that I require. But, you know, even the the satisfaction of the job and knowing that my boss had the Internet for dummies on her desk, you know, just it really it really took a toll on me and it really knocked me down. But I just knew that I was good at what I was doing and I knew I could be even better. So I swallowed it. And, you know, like I said, the next thing you know, I was the first digital employee at an agency in Chicago called Townsend. And I went to 75000 a year then. So, you know, I bought my time because, again, I knew what the prize was going to be. It was going to be a career that I wanted. And I knew I deserved it. I worked hard for it. So you take that beating as much as you can handle, knowing that there's a bright light at the end of that tunnel. And I knew it was there and I knew I could handle it and I knew I could do it. And it it worked out. But perseverance was the key there. Gosh, I had a similar experience, not quite at the beginning of my career, but at maybe a midpoint. I was the new State Department correspondent for CNN. I was feeling very cocky, acting cocky, had been told by the president of CNN that I was one of their rising stars. And the problem was that I didn't really know my beat. And it was going to take me a lot of blood, sweat and tears to get properly sourced, to get read in on so many different issues on the international stage. And my contract was coming up. And the then bureau chief for CNN called me in and we had breakfast. And I thought he was, it was just a perfunctory thing. And he basically said, like, we're not so sure we're going to keep you. (laughs) I was like, what? (laughs) Surprise. Surprise. 
And I kind of bluffed and made it seem like, well, maybe I won't stay. Left the breakfast meeting, came back (laughs) within a matter of hours to say, no, you know what? I am going to stay. Tell me what I need to do. And holy cow, I had to swallow hard, swallow my pride and just put my head down and work my butt off for years. I'll tell you what though, Jonathan, that taught me so much. And I think swallowing your pride is a great experience if you want to reach that next level. Yeah, you know, that's a great story. I'm glad you told me that. I, I think, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. The truth of the matter is, you know, there was a Twilight Zone episode where this guy, he was kind of like a wheeler dealer and a gambler and a drinker and stuff. And he thought this whole time that he was in heaven because he was getting everything he wanted. He was having parties. He was gambling. There were women, blah, blah, blah. And in the end, he's like getting bored. He's like, well, you know, every time he gambles, he wins and everything else. And the guy, his host, in quotes, that looks at him says, you think you're in heaven? And he starts laughing. And that's the end of the program. And I always remember that old episode. And I always try to apply that because if you don't, what's what's the fun in life? I know it's hard as you're going through that that difficult tunnel, but what's the fun in life if you don't get knocked down and have to pick yourself back up? Because you will thank yourself and you will be so much better, stronger, and smarter if you get knocked down from time to time. And I tell myself that today. I tell myself that every day because you know what? I'm hopefully still at the top of my game and I get knocked down. Or I get somebody going to the blogs or somebody wants to complain about me because I had to let them go. You know, I'm going to be dealing with that for the rest of my professional career. But if I don't go through those things, I'm never going to get better. Well said. Jonathan, thank you so much for making Time for Coffee with me and the Time for Coffee community today. I really enjoyed talking with you. Not as much as I did. I like to hear myself too. So that was, it was good. (laughs) No, no, I really appreciate it. We're, We're friends for life. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.